Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 30, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today for the full hour, UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix returns to the show for another good hard look at identity politics, the role of privilege in the college admissions process, and underrepresented minorities' success in higher education. This will be a good time to learn about H.R. 40, proposing reparations for African-Americans. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for staying tuned. For the whole hour, my guest is UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix, my go-to academic on identity politics amidst which we are floundering, like even more from the last time we talked about this. I'm present company included floundering. Professor Dan Phoenix's research interests include black politics, political behavior, public opinion, political communication, urban politics, and mobilization of marginalized groups. He serves as a co-director for the First Generation First Quarter Challenge, a peer mentoring group, faculty co-founder and co-advisor for the Black Internationalists, a program preparing UCI's black students about experience of blackness abroad. As a 2016 Hellman Fellow, he soon will be publishing his book entitled The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics for Action. It will be out later, I believe, later this year. That's correct, in December. In December, and with Cambridge University Press. It's a work in progress for sure since his last time on the show was just prior to the current president's inauguration. So he's now he's contemplating a new political science course, 90-day fiancé, Blurred Visions of American Empire. It would truly cross subfield boundaries, and he puts them all in there. He's in his very active Twitter account. He's willing to crowdsource the syllabus with him this summer. So, folks, you can step up. Davin completed his undergraduate work in political science at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, then both his graduate student in the Joint Degree Program for Public Policy and Political Science and PhD at the University of Michigan. Today, we're going to take up, as I said, the whole the college admissions process, underrepresented minorities' success in higher ed. I want to welcome Davin, who joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Davin Phoenix. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here. We've got a lot to get into. We have so much to get into. But first, I would like for you to take stock. I think you, you uh, by age, you, you succeed John Singleton, who died yesterday at the early age of 51. He wrote the script for Boys in the Hood in just three and a half weeks and presented as his senior thesis. How, Devin Phoenix, how would you like to take stock? I would like to recognize and honor John Singleton for the ways in which he was a trailblazer and a pathmaker. 
I've been seeing on social media a number of uh, African-Americans at various stages of the entertainment industry talking about the ways in which John Singleton made them feel seen, made them feel visible with the stories he told. We can think about how much of a wonderkind he was. Uh, Boys in the Hood, he directs that, I believe, when he's in his early 20s. Right. And becomes not only the first uh, black a man to be uh, nominated for an Oscar for Best Director, but the youngest Best Director nominee as well. And we so we think about how that story continues to reverberate this kind of, um, you know, no punches pulled insight into the lived experiences of black people in these economically and politically starved neighborhoods and the way in which we're trying and striving to build and maintain community amidst all the pressures, right, that threaten to tear that community at its seams. But we can also recognize John Singleton for all of the other stories he told that were really gaining visibility for different people that don't often have their stories told. I think uh, pertinent to this conversation we plan to yes. have today, we can yes. think about higher learning, which is one of the first ways in which I encountered on a big screen, right? People of color trying to navigate and make their way in a college campus. So you saw Boys in the Hood before you were at a, a college student then? Oh, for sure. Okay. So I was very young when Boys in the Hood So came. how old were you? I mean, not, we're not trying to date you now, but I mean, so at what point did you you see that on so the screen? So I didn't see Boys in the Hood when it came out, because when it came out in 1991, I was just eight years old. Oh, right? no, but so you I saw you it, see a, it then. a little later. But I, I'm pretty sure I saw it maybe middle school, Okay, when I was of age to have a better understanding of what it was and what and it's from, trying to represent. Uh, and where were you raised? Because we're going to uh, look at your, the arc of your education okay, as sure. a first-generation college student. But so we can get into a little bit. I was a military brat, so my mom served active duty in the Air Force. Okay. So my, from birth through my elementary years, I was in or at Langley Air Force Base, Hampton, Virginia, southeast uh, on the peninsula. Uh, my middle school and high school years I spent in Vandenberg Air Force Base, California. If anyone's familiar with that, that's where they uh, launched the SpaceX missiles, I think, earlier in the year. Yeah. It's a missile launching base. And so my first day of middle school there, which is like central California, kind of on the water, so it's always foggy, n not SoCal weather as I was imagining it. Uh, but the first day there, they tested a missile, had a missile launch, and I thought it was an earthquake, so I stood in the doorway of the bathroom dutifully. Uh, so that was my <laughs> limited California experience. And... Um, those were kind of where I grew up, and I didn't move much, but everyone moved around me, so I had kind of overlapping new friend circles every two years. Uh, so Boys in the Hood and even Higher Learning, you know, even Rosewood, which I want to shout out, right, which is this historical piece shedding light on this coordinated act of white racial terrorism against this thriving black neighborhood in Rosewood, Florida. Right, even that historical narrative is really important. I want to make sure I acknowledge the significance of that film. And okay. Singleton was telling these stories that were worlds away from where I was living, and yet I could see myself represented in the arc he was trying to tell about some of the historical and contemporary challenges facing black people as they try to move up and move out. Well, and one thing that I hear in the stock taking now, it's right, you were saying it's, it's presenting a hood that's not been known, but it, the, the humanization, which is like right. the, the whole necessary ingredient for people to relate. And therefore, that now now we're talking, we're all in this together. That's right. I think we can think about the difference between portrayals of black life that humanize that life versus viewing that life as an abstraction. And I think when we think about some of the uh, injustices and inequities in our educational system, all the way up from you know pre-K through higher ed, we can consider that important distinction. John Singleton sought to breathe life into people that were often portrayed as statistics or abstractions. And that's really critical as we try to take stock of his legacy as he's departed far too soon. So we'll transition then from that t stock taking to 
your own arc, your background as a first-generation college student. So your mom in, went, uh, she was educated in the, as a Navy person? Uh, Air Force. Or as, I'm sorry, as Air Force. So what's the arc of your education as a first-generation college student? Sure. So I grew up in a home in which uh, there was no question I would be pursuing a college degree. Okay. And I didn't necessarily know what that looked like, but I knew that was the goal. And so the plan, especially throughout middle school and high school, was to excel and do nothing short of excelling academically in my classes and also to do things that would look good on college applications and also on scholarship applications because the path for college to me would be through attaining as many scholarships and fellowships to make it economically viable. So I was able to do that. My so mom the blueprint was, the, was always there. It was always there. My yeah. mom was a huge push behind that. And when she felt I wasn't giving due attention and due diligence to making college economically viable, she intervened and she stepped in and said, here are the things you're going to do with your time. Here are the things you're not going to do with your time um, to make sure I was getting those applications done and I was presenting myself to the very best of my ability and using that gift for gab, using that gift for words in a way to make the most compelling case for I was deserving of these merit-based and uh, need-based fellowships and scholarships. So there was a great deal of work, 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 and putting it all into the page. Application. And then I get to college. Applying yourself, yeah. And the dream is coming to fruition. And I think, ooh, this is a brave new world. This is something different. Uh, what does this look like? You think about the Johari window. You have the known knowns and the <sighs> known unknowns. Very much for me, college was about unknown unknowns. I didn't know what I didn't know. And this wasn't that long ago. We're talking early 2000s, but there was not the language around being first in your immediate family to be pursuing this four-year degree the way there's this language now. And there was not this uh, salient identity around that. So I had no points of connection with other students that might have been making their way on campus uh, the way I was without having that immediate sense of what this is like. And so okay. it was a lot of feeling my way through and a lot of learning things kind of the hard way. Uh, oh, this is how I'm supposed to turn in these uh, lab papers in chemistry. Oh, I was in the honors program, but I had to turn in paperwork to stay in the honors program. Oop, missed that deadline, right? So we can consider, now that I'm on the other end as a college professor, and now that we have language and an identity around being first gen, there's a better appreciation of when you have to address students that are trying to make their way through, you have to be able to fill that gap because there's so many things that they don't know that they don't know. And we'll, we can talk about that with the, what is going on now in the college program. So, but I want to go back, though, through the, the, the pipeline. And I'm, I'm glad Anna DeVere Smith's theatric work is still getting lots of attention about the, the pipeline from, the, from education to jails. Right. And, and, and you were posting this week uh, a recent report where the NAACP Legal Defense Fund was talking about Adolescent African-American and brown girls were subjected to an illegal strip search in just this January. So what we're going to roll back from what you were experiencing as a first generation college student to what's happening where people are getting thrown off this path to seeing themselves as successful, educated citizens, as residents. So 
let's talk to that that case and the other cases that can that have such a corrosive effect on that person's self-identity to be right. out there and productive and to be welcomed. Sure. So I think it's important for us to highlight these cases, but we have to highlight these cases in a responsible way. We don't want to sensationalize them and again deprive the kids that are being victimized by this over-aggressive disciplinary outreach. I don't even want to say disciplinary outreach, right? We're talking about over-aggressively policing kids. We don't want to sensationalize them. We don't want to deprive them of their humanity. You know, we think about the ways in which we uh, acknowledge or provide indicator of how developed a community is. We think about mortality rates or infant mortality rates. One thing I like to think about as an indicator of how close we are or how far away we are from racial equity and justice is a simple question. Do we allow kids to be kids? See, so, that's the thing with those girls. Yeah. They were just see. snarking. They were, I don't, who knows if they were even snarking around, but they, that, but they were identified. That right. was not appropriate for them. They don't get to do that. Right. And so we can think about many instances just in this past month alone. Okay. We saw earlier in the month someone in Richmond, Virginia, so that's kind of close to my neck of the woods. Okay. Tell a group of black kids, wait till your butts turn 18, then you're mine. Right. We had two instances earlier this month in Florida alone, one of a black 11 year old being body slammed by police officers, another 15 year old teenager. So this teenager is picking up the phone of another teenager who's currently being arrested. And simply for picking up that phone, he gets kind of body slammed by police who are slamming him into the ground. And then he gets arrested for like assaulting police. And so we can think about going even further. This is a depressingly long list of kids that have these seemingly very strong overreaches and we can think about how that overreach isn't just affecting and afflicting these kids in their communities we can think about the overreach of policing in these schools and so we know that these schools often more often than not have a shortage of fully accredited and qualified teachers they have a shortage of guidance and psychological counselors they don't seem to have a shortage of police officers who are willing to see these kids not as children but as potential threats and so we can think about just how ingrained some of these ideological and structural stigmatizations of blackness and brownness can be that not only do we see super aggressive uh, overreach invading the lives of black and brown adults we see that systematically come down to the kids even in the spaces where they should be freest to be children in school in the schoolyards in their neighborhoods and playgrounds and so we have to consider the reverberating effects of that, exactly. of those kinds of encounters. So when you think about how that affects their relationship to their citizenship, their legal citizenship and their social citizenship, how that relates to their sense of agency, right? Then we get into some of the questions I'm trying to tackle in my book, where you have this overarching set of resignation that sets in, where you see things that you find dissatisfying and rather than respond to that level of dissatisfaction with a righteous indignation, you respond to it with a racialized sense of resignation. And defeatism. This is just the price of being this skin color in my country. And that's not a mobilizing sense. That's a demobilizing sense. And so when we think about the number of people who are demobilized by this, we can think about the lack of momentum to really tearing down some of these ideologies and tearing down some of these institutions that allow these kids to not be kids. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix. We're talking about first the 
like the early sort of pipeline of African-American, and we should say, too, brown, any adolescents of color that are moving through that education pipeline that are getting derailed, we're talking this part, derailed from seeing themselves as full, fully formed citizens, aspirational citizens. They're, they're, sort of, they're pulling back. They're withdrawing. So we've got this student who's already off kilter, but the student who's already thrown off their aspirational pathway. And then, then I, I just would love to know the first, your first reaction when you saw hitting the press this admissions, college admissions debacle where we're finding out the snow plowing parents want to clear all obstacles. Now, we, we put obstacles in front of African-American and brown middle school students, maybe even grade school. Sure. But now we got the snowplow parents who can write a check from five digits to to eight digits, literally. Right. And so I, what was your reaction? My reaction, at least the reaction that I can share publicly, <laughs> I think first went not necessarily to these parents implicated in this crime and all the others that aren't implicated in the crime but still find ways to grease the oil, grease the wheels, right, so that their kids get these advantages. My thoughts first went to the kids that fight tooth and nail to open up doors that are locked shut for them. And so many of those students I deal with personally, even on UCI's campus, yep. right? We're talking about students that are one or more of the following. First generation, low income, people of color, uh, first-generation immigrants or second-generation immigrants, right, children of immigrants to the U.S., and they're working multiple jobs, and they have very real family commitments, not just commitments um, kind of emotionally and physically, but even financial commitments. So there's the a bandwidth, big difference, the right? The bandwidth between, is filling up. Yeah. There's a big difference between the kind of kids of the parents implicated in this type of crime, whereas we know there's so much intergenerational wealth transfers coming from parent and from grandparent down to child, many of the students I'm dealing with, there's a different type of intergenerational wealth transfer where the money they're making, they're actually paying it up towards their parents and towards their grandparents. So we're talking about a, a, an acute level of economic vulnerability, and they're fighting through this, and they're persisting, and they're resilient as all get out. Yeah. And they also contend with imposter syndrome, which is that nagging sense of, I don't belong here, that nagging sense of, I didn't earn my spot here. And yes, they earn their spot here. They more than earn their spot yeah, here. Yeah, who is the Because imposter? they earn yeah. their spot through yeah. a system that is not a meritocracy, right? And so they overcome real barriers to get here, and they belong here, and we should be working backwards to make sure they can stay here through all the challenges they have. And I just couldn't help but juxtapose their positionality with the positionality of these kids implicated in this crime and i just said we should let kids be kids so i don't obviously blame the kids but i think about olivia jade i think about the child of Lori laughlin who i guess had the large social media following and how after this story broke people were saying she didn't even want to be in college she would say oh, is that um, right yes yeah, so she had I, videos I read more she than was, I was kind of a one of those style influencers oh right right, right. And so people were sorting through her old videos where she said, you know, I'm going to be talking to the dean and my professors because, you know, I don't really feel like I need to attend class. I'm more interested in attending parties. And again, I'm not faulting the kid for being a kid. 
right? A lot of college kids want to have the fun parts of college and don't want to have the non-fun parts of college. But I think about that difference here, right? For her, college isn't this bare necessity. It's not something to cling to with every fiber of her being. It's just a thing to do, right? And so we can think about the difference between her parents writing these checks to illegally get her this spot for something that is essentially just um, an addendum, right? It's like a cherry on top, but she doesn't need this opportunity, right? She just, exactly, she doesn't need this in the way that so many of my students need this. And I think about the diminishing returns on their college degree as they enter a tighter job market than ever, and as they are often subsumed in college debt, right? And we're asking them to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice without giving them the same promise of upward mobility that was available to prior generations. And so I can't help but juxtapize that policy dilemma, that structural failure with these privileged, these children of privilege for whom college is just this adornment right? It's just an accessory. They'd be fine. They'd be more than fine, whether or not they had this adornment. And yet still their parents are breaking rules to get this adornment. So there's just so much, right? There's so much to consider. There's so much to weigh when we think about the hollowness of our meritocracy narratives and the way in which the system and the playing field is so tilted in favor of those that already have But it's not just the rules of the game that can be so easily exploited and that can be broken. We had to also think about the ideological beliefs that continue to undergird our thinking about what differentiates the haves from the have-nots. So we've got people who are part and parcel the embodiment of the American dream because they are making something out of nothing, right? And they are just working, working, working to kick down doors and kick down barriers. And yet they're the ones that bear the stigma of somehow not living up and somehow not fulfilling a promise. And Devin, about a couple of months ago, I had Danielle Watt, who does outreach for underrepresented minorities in STEM careers, academic pursuits. And she just finally, she had her STEAM conference here on campus last Saturday. And so as we talked about it, it, that's three hours that those young ladies have a chance that were six through uh, 12 graders. They had, they had three hours to make up the difference of what the, the privileged counterparts have in over from primary, all the way through primary and higher ed, that, you know, years and hours each, each month of enrichment. So, so Danielle's got three hours. She's got to make up that difference in, in that structural differential that you're talking about. Right. That's what's happening right amidst us. So let's talk th- as well. Uh, so now that the, once the students are here, some of them, lots of them are, are having also to hold down a job that's taken up more bandwidth and the kind of support there's, there's the uh, aspect of how much psychological support is being uh, fun. And, and Tawana Burke was here. Were, were you at, in that house? No, I was unable that, to attend. Okay. So, and she was talking about, well, y'all have the, you know, programs, but are you funding them? She was talking truth to Doug right, right there. Right? Power, yeah. Sure. So, at, you know, it's fine to have these things, but are, is it well-funded? Is it well-advertised? So that sort of safety net for students in need are going to get that. So let's talk about the, the the retention now. So we've somebody's finally somehow accidentally or finally made it through the whole admissions process, but they have to be able to stay in school. And so let's talk about those differentials. 
For sure. And that's incredibly important, right? Because we can talk about expanding the pipeline, but if we're not dealing with that problem of the leaky pipeline, that retention aspect, then we are spinning our wheels without making progress. And so we can think about some of the uh, research-based interventions that we know make a difference for helping the students that have broken through that initial barrier to get here where they haven't been here before, how they stay here. And when we look at some of those specific interventions, I think that they all follow a similar thread or theme, right? Which is to make students feel seen without making them feel hyper-visible. And what's the distinction there, right? Hyper-visibility, we're talking about when students start to feel the beads of sweat form on their forehead, they start to feel the hair stand up on the back of their neck the because they feel targeted in some way. And so I'm very mindful of this when I'm teaching about race in these classes that have racial diversity. I don't want the students to feel the target on their back when I'm talking about the uh, afflictions or challenges facing the racial group to which they belong. I'd much rather have students feel seen. And what's the difference there? So, yeah, and give us a tutorial. Your sure, colleagues, yeah. who knows who's going to listen to this podcast? I think this is feedback that I often get from students, particularly students in my intro to race and ethnicity and politics course. And I realize it's not necessarily because I'm this fantastic educator. It's because I just make an effort to make them feel seen. So I highlight the research that I'm citing in class that comes from people of color. And I'm talking about research and I'm connecting that research to the lived experiences of people. So again, I'm talking about people in a way that's humanizing them and situating them in their actual lived experience and asking all the students in the class across race ethnicity to put themselves in the shoes of people that have these lived experiences. And I'm trying to highlight beyond research narratives from the class, scenes from popular television shows like Fresh Off the Boat or Blackish. Uh, excerpts from Hasan Minhaj's Netflix comedy special where he's talking about the ways in which he navigated his relationship with his first generation immigrant parents. And I see the eyes light up in my students. Yeah. And I ask as we debrief these clips, who's had experiences like this? Who can relate to experiences? Right. How many of you navigate this where you are working your way through a school system with parents that went through a very different process because they were raised themselves outside of the U.S. Giving students space to say, yes, I relate to this experience. And giving them a space to say, hey, you have some knowledge here. Why don't you share in a small group? Or for those of you who are so bold, with the whole class, how you think that experience has shaped your relationship to politics. What goes how on? How you think that experience has shaped what you focus on, what your major is here in college, right? That's exciting for students because they get to see themselves as a part of this arc. They get to see themselves as a part of the community fabric. So by doing those things, right, highlighting the ways in which their experiences are, you know, instrumental to thinking about how their politics is shaped, right? And thinking about, hey, there's research that sees you. There's research by people that look like you, that have had similar experiences to you, that says your experience is not alone and isolated. And bringing in popular culture and saying, here are the ways in which you can see your narrative and your experiences represented in the broader discourse. And so we can think about those in-classroom interventions. But we have to think beyond that. It's not just about giving them a sense of psychological placement. It's also about helping them to feel institutionally rooted on campus. We can think, I go back to this, like when I was a college student myself, I didn't realize the degree to which College is its own language, and you either learn the language quickly or you fall back very quickly. Think about this campus alone. We've got SARC, SAM, ASUCI, Europe, SROP. 
what are these acronyms? Right. You either know these acronyms or you don't. And here's the thing. A lot of people are going to be comfortable saying, I don't know that acronym. What is it? I got to learn. But many other people are going to say, I don't know that acronym. I probably should know that acronym. Oh, I'm behind the curve already. Yeah, when we think about things like office hours, even terms and jargon like resources. When we're talking about research, standard errors, p-values. What does this mean? If we're not willing to break the fourth wall and say, I know this is daunting. Let me walk you through what this is. Let me walk you through what the concept of office hours are. Let me walk you through this idea that we as professors are actually human and you can just come to us during this time and talk about whatever you want to talk about. And you right? can come more than once. You can come, come more by. than so, once. Yeah. yeah, it's not. Yeah. You can come for me. I try to specify. You can tell them to talk about class stuff. You can come to talk about life stuff because people need those explicit signals and those kinds of mm -hmm. markers when we make things that are kind of unspoken spoken we do a great deal of even the playing field between the people that already know the language already know those unspoken rules and those that don't once they know the rules then they're more equipped to play by them and then we have more of an even playing field but you know that's on us it's not a major burden for us as faculty and staff and administrators to play it's simply something for us to be conscious about and be mindful about and be proactive about and if we're not willing to do those things, then we are well, not that's speaking what truth to power about our commitment to opening up the doors of opportunity for students that haven't typically had this opportunity. And that's, uh, I was sharing with you in advance of, of the interview when I, I got to hear Casey Gerald, who from a, a pretty gritty Houston neighborhood, raised by his mainly his grandmother right his mother came his mother disappeared on him are you familiar with casey George? i am yeah you are and, up on him and so okay so and what he he just lays it out there in his own uh, it's a memoir that he's come out that anyway i said houston ba uh, background he went to yale undergrad and he played on the football team there right, huh? and then he pl uh, went to harvard business school right. so what he his pithy line for us all to let to sink in is that higher education is committing malpractice mm -hmm. in creating a whole and a free student and that's what you're getting at is that students are wondering oh, what do I belong there's that imposter syndrome situation and there's what do those acronyms mean and whether they're going to know those resources of visiting and returning to the faculties of office hours uh, that 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 malpractice of creating a, a whole person was it was a phenomenally powerful way of putting it out there for sure and it think it even makes me consider the degree to which i don't want to simply espouse interventions that can be seen as individual level we also have to think about at the institutional level and so one way we can think about the institutional level yeah. to speak to your point about the students that have a full set of needs and demands and commitments that are beyond the classroom, are we willing to consider more institutional flexibility in assignment turning in, right? Are we willing to consider students that have rigorous and static work hours, that have very clear family commitments, that have commutes because they can't afford to live on campus, so they have to commute from where they live, and sometimes they have to contend with traffic and some of those other variables. Are we willing to be flexible in that regard that's an institutional intervention. Are you willing to extend opportunities for people to provide um, or to attain invaluable research experience, knowing that they have a very limited set of hours that they have to give to this, right? Are we willing to consider that students may not be able to make our office hours at the conventional time because of their other commitments? Are we willing to meet with them outside of those office hours? So, Devin, does that make it to, like, the faculty senate level of discussion? Where, where do those discussions happen where people 
are more mindful about meeting the students where they are. I mean, I this isn't a safe fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, where where are those arenas where that's getting moved out? I see that conversation happening in a number okay, of arenas. Okay, where? Uh, so I see it happening uh, individually amongst faculty uh, that have those concerns. I see it uh, in social media spaces. I see it at conferences, right? I see it in meetings of these different committees that are devoted to kind of advancing junior faculty outcomes, advancing student outcomes. There's a lot of forums and spaces, I believe, in which these conversations are being had. Um, we're not all on the same page, right, about what the ultimate goals are. Because some of the things that I've said just now, yeah. many people would contest and challenge them. They'd say, no, if students want to be students, they need to make the sacrifice, they need to make the tough decisions, they need to make the tough choices, right? And we cannot completely disrupt our institu institutional structure to accommodate the needs of a certain segment of the student population. So I think we often see different divides manifest in the different perspectives people have on this. The perspective I take is not some the perspective of one who has much fidelity to some of our cultural norms and institutional traditions. I think that is largely a product of me never being fully indoctrinated within those norms and traditions. I was always encountering them for the first time, and so I don't have any particular loyalty to them because I thought some of these norms and institutions made my life harder than it needed to be. So I'm willing to adapt and modify and transform these institutions as needed. I know there are other colleagues of mine locally and universally that have similar positions. We're talking about these kinds of institutional norms, not only impacting undergraduates, but certainly grad students as well. Um, we think about diversifying the ranks of the academy, not just in terms of demographics, but in terms of research paradigms, right? In terms of methodologies, in terms of new frameworks that challenge existing frameworks. That's heady stuff. It is. And it it's is scary stuff, I think, to a lot of people. Uh, we can think about broader, big, question, big picture questions about what is the true nature and purpose of the academy. Is it to continue building on those existing reserves of knowledge, or is it to be more disruptive and upending of those existing reserves of knowledge and to take new paradigms that might eradicate or replace old paradigms? When you get into some of those big picture conversations and you allow some of those unspoken values to be spoken, I think we see some real divides in how we are supposed to, or not, make these institutional changes to accommodate student needs and to better uh, diversify the ranks of students making full advantage of this opportunity, not just as individuals, right, but as campuses, as divisions, as departments, as units. But as you know, any institution, its primary focus is self-preservation. So we're yeah, talking about absolutely. a great deal of ingrained resistance, even from people that you know, mean well, I'm not trying to identify people simply that have malice in their hearts, right? Even well-meaning people can be complicit in making opportunities more difficult to attain because they have a vested interest in maintaining an institution, not recognizing the degree to which that institution itself and its standard operating procedures, right, can perpetuate uh, some of these problematic outcomes that are differentially and disproportionately felt by certain students on the economic run, certain students from different racial and immig immigrant groups and demographic groups. So, Devin, when you're, uh, what was going on around the water cooler around UCI when that maybe there was a collective, like, we dodged the bullet here, we didn't get implicated, and then, like, <laughs> UCLA got implicated. But what, what, what were those conversations that you're privy to, to bring to this microphone? Yeah, I think it was interesting from 
what I saw of the kind of reaction conversation, yeah. I think it was a couple of things. One, maybe an affirmation. Okay, you know, UCI with its 60% first-gen student population, with the increasing resources being devoted to providing interventions and programming to help meet the needs of specifically first-generation students, of which I'm a proud part of one of these programs, this peer mentorship program, where we're trying to provide scaffolding mm -hmm. based on the mentorship and insight of advanced students themselves who can speak to some of the challenges they've overcome so that with their guidance and support, our incoming classes of first-gen social science students can maybe sidestep some of those challenges, right, or not be swamped by some of those challenges. So on one hand, we think about, okay, maybe this is an increasing clarion call to continue those efforts. And I think on the other side, there's a sense of reckoning, right? Wow, it's still very easy for those that want to game the system to game the system. And so I think we want to be increasingly mindful of the distribution of opportunities that come from UCI. So we've recently seen, right, UCI being named a top public value, a top value institution right. for public universities, right? And I think that's something that we definitely carry as a badge of honor. And I think that badge of honor can only be worn credibly if we're committed to making sure we continue to allow that value to be felt by those students that we by underrepresented ourselves students. in the back, right? Yeah. For presenting that, you know, we take a lot of pride in the fact that we have such a high percentage of first-gen students. We take a lot of pride in the fact that we are a Hispanic-serving institution, right? An Asian American Pacific Islander-serving institution, right? We take a lot of pride in those markers of diversity. At the same time, there's a great deal of work to do, right? What can we do to make our Black student body more supported so that the numbers increase and the retention increases and the satisfaction of our black students increase amongst part. many other instances in which we can be mindful of not only the markers that allow us to pat ourselves on the back but how we can have even greater sense of urgency about meeting those particular student needs so you talked about where there's the, the informal and the sort of the more structured uh, places. Where where do you see? I'm, I'm really, let's just be let's run with this. Where, in terms of redirecting the energies and and uh, taking stock of serving underrepresented minorities better amidst this whole college admissions and, and uh, related disparities that are being disclosed, sharp relief. So where where is it going to happen? in the most productive, constructive way. What, like, you are given, let's just say, Chancellor Gilman gives you, uh, like, $5 million to make it better. What would what would be, how would you move on that? With the, like, your own illuminations funding. Ooh, that is an interesting question, to say the least. Maybe $5 million or maybe more, but let's, <laughs> but what what is it, where is it going to happen, change? So, with a pool of money, my first priority is getting a crew of people together to think about how we can uh, compensate people that are doing the labor that is often uncompensated. When we think about that distinction between individual level and institutional level interventions, oftentimes that's a fine distinction, right? Oftentimes we're really thinking about whether there are institutional incentives for individuals to do the work, to do the labor. And if we can not just incentivize more individuals to do the work, and I'll give examples of what okay, that kind of work do. is. Okay, please do. Yeah, yeah. 
not only do that, but actually provide some substantive compensation to the smaller number of faculty and staff and administrators that are indeed doing the work, then I think we can make some even greater inroads. And so what does that work right. look like? When we as faculty are facing the tenure clock, we're thinking about the distribution of our time and energy between research, teaching, and service. And we know that the lion's share of our evaluation is based on our research. And, and pu- so the that publishing means, at yeah, the end, yeah. Right? Has to happen. That publish or perish. And so we know that the teaching and the research, the teaching and the service, excuse me, they matter, but they matter in a different way. And so we have to think about the rational actor problem that arises here. So many faculty, both junior and senior faculty, don't face anywhere near the same incentive for changing their approach to teaching and expanding their service of students. They don't face any real incentive in the way they do their research. So okay. we're putting a lot of pressure on the individuals that take on those roles out of a personal sense of commitment and conviction. So if you give me a pool of money, I'm thinking about how I can compensate people that take on the labor and say yes to the things that we're very often incentivized to say no to. And what kinds of things am I thinking about in terms of saying yes? Research advising, honors and seniors thesis advising, writing re- letters of recommendation for students. Advising like everywhere. students Every one-on-one step. personal advising. Expanding our office hours so that we can accommodate more student needs. Sitting on those panels where we talk about either our trajectory or our fields, how we got into our career field. So career panels, okay. right? Different types of panels about what the research process looks like. Acculturating Public interest panels, right? Mm-hmm. All those types of forums uh, that students and student organizations often invite faculty to participate on. Saying yes to be a part of those and sharing your personal experience and sharing your expertise and knowledge as opposed to saying no. Those are concrete ways, right, in which we are faced with a choice. Do we say yes and give our time and energy to this that has this clear value to the students, but doesn't have the same value to us? How do we compensate that, right? How do we incentivize people that might otherwise say no to say yes by saying you can get some more research funding, right? Or you can not just advise these students, but you can pay them to be research assistants and they're, they're you know assisting you with your next project. Those are the ways in which we can fill some of these gaps, right? So that there's not an incentive to act rationally that limits our ability to be service providers to the students that could really benefit from us giving more of ourselves. So, Devin, does that go right smack in a, a faculty senate agenda, and it just keeps you just keep shoving it on that agenda, <laughs> keep putting it in front of them every, every what's it? It's monthly meetings, right? Well, we can think about this like a federalism structure, right? Okay. We can think about the federal level, the faculty senate. We can also think about the policy entrepreneurship that can come from. A department that wants to blaze trails in this so we don't just simply want to think about taking this agenda to faculty senate right we can also think about taking this agenda to specific department chairs and thinking about how money that they have might be able to be distributed in a way that might incentivize people for doing service work in the forms of say you know increased research funds for this service you're providing for students and so then other departments and other schools and campuses can take notice of what this particular department is doing and how it is finding a way to find a synergy right between the needs and demands on the faculty and the needs and demands of the students so there's you know multiple levels at which we can attack this there's multiple levels of governance at which we can see this intervention uh, be done and be replicable 
So I, I'm going to be setting aside some a big chunk of what we're going to talk about because there was a lot more to mine here. We knew that, though, in mm -hmm. advance. But I'd like to then add to this consideration, it's still the student, and now we're watching some very persistent voter suppression kinds of movements in Tennessee and Texas that's d trying to dial down the voter registration campaigns right. and engagement. So that's one more kind of a big boulder rolled in the pathway of a, a an underrepresented minority student in being civically engaged. We're not even talking about academically, but it's happening right. on the campuses. So if you want to uh, react to what those the, the Texas and Tennessee state legislatures are doing to suppress that voting, that demographic. Sure. So this is actually the ground I'm covering this week in my black politics. Oh, class, my gosh. Right? What, you what? want to think about the again, kind of the synergy, right? Between right. These uh, very specific and intentional efforts to kind of increase the burdens on voting, particularly from specific uh, segments of the population. And we can kind of roll into this conversation so many other recent incidents of the same. So as you kind of gave me some of these talking points about what's going on in uh, these states, I thought about, well, what's going on also in Florida, right? Right, so right. In November, we oh my gosh, the extension, right, of enfranchisement to former felons, something that was going to be the greatest expansion of voting rights since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And what have we seen in recent weeks, right? Uh, an attempt to push a bill through Florida's legislature. Well, it's moving. It's greatly, only going one way, right? That's true. Yes, it's rapidly advancing, right? And what would this do? This would essentially roll back that expansion by saying, oh, those former felons can't vote until they've paid off in full all their legal fees. All the rest of it, which is huge. so we can think about huge. the echoes of the poll tax. Right, right exactly. Like you've got actually a financial commitment you have to make before you cast this ballot. And so we certainly see history continue to repeat itself with ways in which we can use legal machinations at various levels of government to place these barriers in between people and their constitutionally guaranteed right. We can think not only about these specific legal barriers, whether it is limits on registration periods and, of course, reductions in the windows of early voting, stiffer and stiffer requirements for what you need in order to be able to cast a ballot. We can also think about the more subtle decisions like coaling polling closing of polling locations in predominantly minority neighborhoods bad machinery or the removal of polling machines or the institution of old dilapidated outdated machines in these predominantly minority neighborhoods whereas the predominantly white neighborhoods in the suburbs get the high pristine machines we can think about the effect of these on the broader engagement, particularly of young people right. that are starting to go. come into their own politically and entering voting age. They go from your class and they go, okay, now I want to register or I want to make sure I know where to, where to vote. Sure. And then obstacle, and A, so B, C, D. Strategic responses to this reality from black people and brown people that are affected by this, right? We don't simply see these machinations be done at the state level, at the county level, sometimes even at the federal level, uh, without a proactive response from the people of color being affected, particularly young people. How did this manifest in the last election cycle, 2016, with black people in particular engaging in activist and insurgent activity at very high rates that was not accompanied by greater electoral participation? And so what is that signaling right people reading the tea leaves and saying 
we have these demands we have these needs and we see that the route to get these needs met the route to force ourselves into the agenda is not through casting these contested and compromised votes and so we also see that represented and manifested in black lives matter the national movement for black lives right the umbrella organization making a pointed refusal to make an endorsement in that presidential election and what were they saying directly and indirectly the kinds of structural changes we want to see are not going to come from this individual and elective office. We're going to continue to pursue a varied political strategy. And that political strategy had real consequences for the 2016 race when we think about turnout, not just those added barriers in the form of increased barriers to voting that had been passed, particularly since 2008, but also since the 2012 election, but in how people are strategically responding to that, saying, if you're going to yeah. make it all the more harder for me to vote, which also means you're going to feel less responsive to my input as a community once you're in office, then I'm going to pursue other means of acting, which I think have different costs and benefits, but can also ultimately allow myself right to force myself onto the agenda. And so what do we see in 2020, especially as we had a lot of hand wringing over how marginal differences in black turnout might have made all the difference in some of these battlegrounds. And as we had a quite problematic narrative around black women saving America after black women had surges in turnout in Alabama's special Senate election right. to elect the Democrat Doug Jones over Roy Moore, right? Black women in particular said, no, no, we're not saving anyone. We are working the way everyone in politics is expected to work and the way we've always worked to preserve our self-interests within this very racially stratified political environment. So uh, for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor. We're going from sort of the college admissions retention process and structural situation arrangement to where this moves into voter engagement and obstacles in that process. And I I wanted to call it, I was so, so fascinated. I was impressed by how she, the people, put together, it's the first of a series of forms, the first being in Houston. And they were dialed on to, it's going to be about policy. It's not going to be a biography. They got eight presidential candidates to come to the forum. And they all were asked, what are you going to do that would engender my support as an underrepresented minority voter. And so I, I'm hoping that She the People gets a lot of jobs done, including what we're talking about, this sort of, this kind of erosion of civic engagement in, you know, in the voting process, but that they will set a standard for debates to be conducted where they were in 2016 amazingly vapid. And so I don't know, are you hopeful that she the people is going to be a, a standard by which other uh, mainstream sorts of outlets are going to be paying attention and perhaps incorporate into their forums? I think I place my hope in a different possibility. Okay, what's that? So I wouldn't necessarily expect she the people, which I do want to just pause to shout out how important I think this forum is as a reflection of the dynamic strategy, right, that's often led by black women. I definitely think She the People is a savvy response to the rhetoric around the value of the black vote to Democrats that came out of 2016 and 2017. When you think about, again, black women pushing back against that narrative yeah. that, oh, we saved America, no, we're acting in our interests, 
this forum and the institution of it and the creation of this first forum with the candidates at Texas Southern, right, a historically black university, it's saying yes. if you want to credit us with saving the country, if you want to credit us with being such a powerful part of the Democratic bloc, what have you done for us? What are you going to do for us? So I think it's really important to provide this forum. I wouldn't necessarily hold out hope that this forum and the ways in which it forced the candidates to speak directly to how they're going to make policy interventions to speak to the specific needs of black women and minority women more broadly. I wouldn't necessarily expect it to be replicated in the broader political discourse because of how entrenched that discourse is and having some particular sets of blinders when it comes to right, right. race and gender. Uh, mm. But I would expect this forum to continue to provide an alternate space, an alternate space in which those voters that don't feel themselves and their views represented in those broader narratives to say within this alternate space, hey, you know our value to your vote prospects within this space, what are you going to do to earn our vote? So the fact that I believe this is expected to be one, the first of many forums in many instances, that this isn't a one-time thing, right? But this ongoing um, forum and institution that gives women of color space that they don't normally have, I think that's very powerful because we don't need to simply think about the politics of people of color um, as mainstreaming as an ultimate goal providing viable and standing alternate spaces that can exist toe-to-toe with those mainstream spaces so that the candidates can weave throughout because once you have this kind of forum i think mainstreamed you can't help but have marginalization you're going to have those specific needs and demands of black women and other women of color folded in in unsatisfactory ways into broader, maybe class-based appeals. So what I recall still to this day about how the 2016 debates were set up, and I saw a wasn't just a reticence, it was a refusal to step out of the vapid questions that were thrown to the candidates. And and I'm thinking, so that, that may make it more difficult to, except for there's one... One candidate now who's very predisposed to talking about policy in a very specific way. And right. so I'm I'm not so sure we can see a candidate that attended or is attending the other, see the people forums, and they could drag into a mainstream media forum and say, as we discuss policy in this other forum, I want right. to bring, I mean, so like there, the candidate isn't obligated to answer the question because they're they're going to bring in their talking points. So I, I'm just not sure why a candidate doesn't f- take liberties and say, this is what I think we ought to be talking about instead. The people that are climate activists were saying there were never any climate action, climate policy questions, but that didn't so it doesn't prevent a candidate from bringing those up. So anyway, I was just wondering how, as we're, this is like the last question we're going to get off here is what potential there is for a candidate to drag what was so fertile in She the People. They, they don't even have to name She the People, but they, but they could, right? Sure. I think that's another fascinating question. And there's certainly a level of strategy that these candidates are considering in terms of how they can and cannot shape the discourse surrounding them and so i do wonder the degree to which any of these candidates particularly the more policy focused ones and i will shout out as an individual elizabeth warren right who has many times impressed many people with her ability to speak concretely to actual policy prescriptions i think there's a disconnect between her ability to do so and the amount of media coverage and 
maybe many might argue the amount of praise she should be receiving for the ability to go beyond platitudes and think about policy prescriptions. And so that leads to a particular constraint, right? If this is not the way for me to lead the narrative, what do I do? And so I think that's a broader question that isn't just thinking about how people of color can get their needs met in politics, but how anyone that has a particular interest in a particular policy question that's pressing can actually move our politics from, you know, punditry and plaudits to policy solutions. Well, Devin, we're going to put the House Resolution 40 on reparations. I put that into another interview at a later date. I want you desperately to come back so we can do that. So I'm just going to thank Dan Phoenix for coming all the way into studio today to talk with us on Ask a Leader. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Davin Phoenix was my guest, UCI political science professor. We're talking about identity politics. We're going from the education pipeline through college and on to the, the voter booth. So I'm going to just announce a Community Conversations Initiative continues tonight at Long Beach Opera, number three in the series. Tonight's title is Life Beyond Prison and a panel around the experiences of formerly incarcerated individuals. March for Science is Saturday. The nearest location seems to be the L.A. area and the websites for more details. That's my wrap. Next week, I'll have on Rachel Bit a coffer, polling forecaster from where uh, where Davin went as an undergrad. She's from there, and she's an assistant director of the Wasson Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport University. She'll make us better consumers of political polling. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs>